Hi, welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. My name is Jillian and we're so glad you're joining us. Today, Pastor Brian Broderson continues through our series, Life in His Name, with a message entitled, A New Commandment. In John 13, we see that Jesus predicts his betrayal, yet we are reminded to take hold of a new commandment, the commandment to love others as God has loved us. Are you known by your love? Or are you known by your opinions, your stance, your likes and dislikes, and so forth? What would it look like to be known by the very act of loving others as God has loved us? May the witness of the church, which includes us, no longer be marred by our failure to love one another. So friends, I encourage you to grab your Bible, your writing utensils and notebooks, and let's take notes of all the things that stand out to you today. We're making our way through the Gospel of John and the passage that we read together this morning, that is our text today. And in our last teaching, we found ourselves peering in on the disciples with Jesus at the table, sharing in what we know traditionally as the Last Supper. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the Last Supper, the emphasis in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is on the fact that Jesus, um, at a certain point, he takes the bread, he breaks it, he distributes it, he says, this is my body broken for you, uh, do this in remembrance of me. Then he takes the cup, he passes it, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins, and so forth. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, that's the emphasis that they put on the Last Supper. John is recording the same meal, but he doesn't mention that at all. And it, of course, John writes his gospel, the last of all of the gospels. And so he figures probably that, okay, that's been stated. Um, I want to focus on something else Jesus did that night that is also radically significant. So what John then focuses on, and this is what we uh, read and studied last week, is he focuses on uh, this act of Jesus where he washes the feet of the disciples. Something that was just completely um, unexpected and really even um, unimaginable. And I think Richard uh, made a good point last week of, uh, showing us how radical this was. But, but let me just take us back to that for a moment. Um, so John writes that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So then, then Jesus goes on, and, and having done this, as everybody is just completely stunned by what Jesus has done, because they're stunned because what Jesus has done is he has just taken on the role of a slave. And it was the duty of the lowest of the slaves to wash the feet of someone, and now Jesus is doing that. And he goes on and he says to them, uh, you call me Lord and Master, and you're right. That is who I am. And if I, your Lord and Master, have done this for you, then you ought to do the same 
for each other. He says that he had left them an example. So that's the background for where we come to. And as I mentioned, we're going to focus our attention on verse 34. A new commandment I give you, Jesus says. But before we get there, there are a few other things in the portion that I want to just make note of. And the first is found in verse 19. Now, Jesus, in verse 18, he, he quotes a scripture and he says that the, the scripture is uh, going to be fulfilled momentarily. And then he says in verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. And here's just a quick word on this. Um, one of the reasons that we can have confidence that the Bible is God's word is that Jesus showed us here that the ability to foretell the future is something only God can do. So the Bible is full of predictive prophecy, tells us about the future, not in vague or generalized terms, but tells us about the future in very specific detail. And so Jesus here pretty much shows us that that is uh, what we are to conclude from prophecy. Because he tells them, he says, I know that uh, I know those I have chosen, verse 18, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me or lifted up his heel against me. Jesus is telling them what is about to happen, that he is about to be betrayed. And he says, I'm telling you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will know that I am who I am. So when we read in Scripture prophecy and we see it fulfilled, that is an evidence to us that this book is not uh, the, simply the words of men, this is God's word. God who alone knows and foretells the future. Now, verse 21, let's jump down to verse 21. Well, verse 20, very, very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Whoever accepts me uh, accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus it says, was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. The point that I want us to see here is the fact that Jesus was troubled. And I, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because um, a lot of times we mistakenly think that Jesus, because he was divine, because he was God, he was God and human, we forget the human side of Jesus and we forget that Jesus experienced emotion just like we do. And so here, Jesus, knowing that there is a betrayer among them, this is something that is hurtful to Jesus in his humanity. Let's not forget that Jesus was a human being like we are. Let's not forget that he suffered like we do. Let's remember those things because when we remember that, 
you know what it helps us understand? It helps us understand his mercy and his compassion when we suffer. Because if we think of Jesus as detached from human emotion or suffering, then when we're suffering, we don't think that he relates to us. But the Bible goes out of its way to tell us over and over again that he does. That he was tested in every point as we are. But the difference is he was without sin. So this is just a reminder to us of that. Now in verse 23, after Jesus has said uh, that he is, uh, one is going to betray him, his disciples, verse 22, stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now that's an interesting self-reference. Most people believe, I think it's absolutely the case, this is John referring to himself. He, he says this at another place uh, later on in the, I think it's the 21st chapter. He also refers to the one whom Jesus loved. Now, why would John refer to himself as the one whom Jesus loved? Well, he knew Jesus loved him. <laughs> so um, the thing that I want to take away from this and the thing that I think we need to realize is that, you know, that's true about all of us who are followers of Jesus. Jesus loves us. And John just happens to be one of those people who he gets it. He sees that. John's not perfect. He knows that there are plenty of things about himself that might potentially cause him to think that God really couldn't love him because of this, that, or the other thing. But, but John just knows. He just knows that he is loved by Jesus. Maybe Jesus uh, demonstrated affection for John in ways that, that he just, he sensed it. But what we all need to know is that we are the disciples that Jesus loved. Let's not go around thinking that, oh, I'm the disciple that Jesus tolerates. I'm the disciple that Jesus is always sort of bummed out at because, you know, I'm such a loser, but I guess I'm still saved just because God is good. No, let's be those people who say, no, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. He, he loves me despite myself so often. Again, with John, John wasn't perfect. There were times Jesus actually rebuked John. And yet, he still had that confidence. He was a disciple that Jesus loved. Now, Judas, as we see here, he is the one who is going to betray Jesus. And so Jesus uh, dipped the piece of bread. He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And what I want us to see here is just simply this reminder of this reality. There really is a devil. Satan is real. And he's out to undermine our faith. He's out to destroy our lives. A little bit earlier, it was said that Satan, having already put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, he had prompted him, the NIV says, and, and let's just understand this. Let's, we don't want to freak out about it, but let's understand that there is a devil and he 
is out there working against you. He's working against me. He's working against the kingdom of God. He's trying to undermine our faith. He's trying to tempt us uh, away from obedience to God. This is what he does. And Judas yields himself to that. And here he, it says that he was entered by Satan. He was taken over. Uh, many have wondered, speculated about why Judas did what he did. Why did Judas betray Jesus? We know that he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. We know that Judas was greedy because John has already told us that. Could it have been the money? Perhaps. I think really with Judas, it was just simply that he did not like the program that Jesus had laid out. He did not want a suffering Messiah. He did not want a Messiah that was going to take up a cross and call his followers to take up their crosses. He wanted a Messiah that was going to reign in power and give that power to Judas as well. So for whatever reason, ultimately, Judas betrayed Jesus and he did it in conspiracy with Satan who entered him. And then the final thing I want to point out before we get into our primary uh, text here this morning is um, Peter in verse 37. He, Jesus is saying, um, I'm going away. You can't follow me now. You'll follow me later. Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus said, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter was, to his hurt, he was self-confident. And his self-confidence would often get him into trouble. And in another gospel, we read that, that Peter even says, when Jesus says, you're going to deny me, Peter says, Lord, even though every one of these other guys would deny you, I never would do it. So he's setting himself against all of his friends, saying, I am actually a better disciple than they are. I love you more. I'm more loyal to you. That's his weakness, his self-confidence. Jesus says, Simon, tonight you're going to disown me three times before the rooster crows. So I was just in Jerusalem three days ago, and I was at a, a location called Peter in the Galicantu. Peter in the Galicantu. Galicantu is Latin for Peter in the place where the rooster crowed. So this happened at the, um, at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. So there's a place that many people believe is uh, the home of Caiaphas or the ancient location where Caiaphas's house stood. There's a church there today, and thus that is where the name comes from. But Peter, he just reminds us of our need to be humble and recognize that unless the Lord keeps us, we're all uh, vulnerable to, to falling. So those are just things that I thought we should touch on before we come to our main passage for the day, verse 34.
Here Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. So this automatically brings up a question. And the question is, how, how is this a new command? Because this command was given centuries earlier to the people of God. All the way back in the book of Leviticus, which was written during the time that the children of Israel were making their journey into the promised land, it was stated there in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. And then over in verse 34 of the same chapter, they were even told to love the stranger, the foreigner, those who come in and join you, love them as yourself. Yet Jesus refers to it as a new commandment. Love one another, a new command. How is it new? Well, he goes on and he tells us how it is new. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So the newness is that Jesus has now, he's demonstrated what the command originally meant. Because even at the time, there was, there was um, willful, probably, uh, ignorance of, of what it really meant. There was one occasion where Jesus is uh, speaking to a certain person, and the person asked Jesus, well, uh, what's the... the most important commandment. Jesus said, this is it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the man that Jesus said that to responded and said, well, who is my neighbor? So... Although the command had said, you shall love your neighbor, it was like, well, I'm not really sure who my neighbor is, or I'm not really sure just what exactly does love mean. So Jesus is now, this is a clarifying moment for his people, and especially for his people who are now going to be his people into the future. And so that there'd be no question about what he meant when he said, love one another, he says, love one another as I have loved you. Now, John, uh, John has, if you've read your Bible for a while, if you've been to lots of Bible studies, you've probably heard this. Uh, John is, is sometimes called the apostle of love. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is John writes about love or the command to love, or he uses the term love more than any other biblical writer. So in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all together in those three Gospels, the word love appears 23 times. In John's Gospel alone, it appears 20 times. But in John's first letter, 1 John, which is five chapters now, now, the Gospel of John is 21 chapters, and it appears 20, 20 times. In the epistle of John, the word love appears 24 times. 
So there's no other uh, epistle or writer. Uh, 140 times between Romans and Revelation, the, uh, the word love appears, but John, um, he exceeds them all. He is the apostle of love. Now, when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, what, what does that look like? How did Jesus love us? Just a quick note, the word here is agape. That is the word that is used, the Greek word agape. Um, Cheryl and I did a class a few weeks ago. Some of you were in that class where we looked at, um, I don't know how many words, lots of words, that, words that, that Christians should know, um, the, the meaning of them, and we talked about the word agape. And how the word agape is a word that is translated love, but it speaks of a love that is complete, a love that is selfless, a love that is unconditional, and a love that is faithful. So when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, that's what he's talking about. Jesus's love for us is a complete love. It, it lacks nothing. Do we understand that? We're in a world that is starved for love. We have people all around us who, who desperately need to know that somebody loves them. The love of God for them, the love of God for them through us is what God wants them to experience. And, and it's a, a love that is complete. It's a love that is not lacking in any way. It's a selfless love. See, God's love for us is not, it's not for him to receive something. It's strictly for us to benefit from. Now, all of us who love, in some way, we benefit from the, the person that we love in some way or another. It's sometimes we don't benefit simply because maybe there's no reciprocation on the part of the other person. Maybe you, you have a child, you love your child desperately, your child does not reciprocate that love, your child just says, you know, I hate my parents, I don't wanna, that, that's a very difficult and horrible situation, but we know what it's like to, to love through that. Well, that's God's love for us. It's a selfless love. He doesn't love us because he benefits from it. God doesn't, uh, God doesn't need our love. God is completely uh, fulfilled within himself. So he didn't love us so he could get something back. His love for us is just completely directed at us because of who he is. So his love for us is selfless. His love for us is unconditional. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Paul tells us, that's John 3.16. Paul tells us in Romans 5.8 that it's that God loving the world, when did that happen? While we were yet sinners, God loved us and demonstrated his love for us in that Christ died for us. So it wasn't, uh, there wasn't some condition that we had to meet before God started loving us. 
God already loved us. His love for us is an unconditional love. And when we, this is, this is his love for the world. This is his love for us as well. God's love doesn't change when we don't live up to a particular standard. Like I was saying a few minutes ago, John got that. John knew he was the disciple that Jesus loved, even though he could probably find 10 things that somebody might say, well, how could God love you? Because look at this or look at that. So it's an unconditional love. Remember, this is the love that Jesus has for us. This is what he's saying uh, to love one another with. And then finally, it's a faithful love. It's a faithful love. It's a, it's a loyal love. It's a love that that is there from start to finish. It's a love that doesn't let go. That's the love of Christ. And that is how we are to love one another. You know, the Bible teaches, specifically in the New Testament, what we might call the supremacy of love. That love is supreme. That love is... It is the thing. This is what God is aiming at. And he tells us in uh, Paul's letter to Timothy that the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and a genuine faith. This is what God is aiming for. He's, he's aiming to have a people who love him and love one another like he loves us. That's his aim. That's what he's wanting to see happen. So the supremacy of love. Paul the Apostle, he understood that. He said this. You might remember him saying this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So you see the supremacy of love. And at the end of that portion, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says, Love never fails. Knowledge will vanish. Prophecy will be done away with. But love will endure. Pastor Chuck Smith, we know Chuck. He said this, all doctrinal orthodoxy and understanding of scripture is of no value without love. Now think about this. Jesus says this is how, basically what Jesus is saying here is, Love one another. That's how everybody's going to know that you're my follower. What do we, maybe not even consciously, but what do we so often think of are going to be the indicators that we're following Jesus? I think a lot of times it's not love. I think a lot of times it is, well, I have great theological knowledge. I have right doctrine. I go to the right church. I'm with the right people. That's that's the thing. That's what proves me to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus said, this is what's going to prove that you're my disciple. It's if you love one another. Everyone will know you are, 
my disciples, if you have love for one another. In the second century, now some people have asked this question, like how in the world did, did the Christians, how did they influence their world to so radically alter it? How did the ancient world go from a thoroughly pagan world to becoming a world that was radically influenced by Christ? Well, one of the main ways was by the way they lived. Second century philosopher Aristides, listen to what he said. He, he's writing about the Christian community of his day. He's an outside observer. Listen to what he says he sees. He says, they seek to persuade their servants or handmaids or children to become Christians by the love they have for them. That's the first thing he notes. They seek to draw others in by loving them. And when they have become so, they call them without distinction, brothers and sisters. They walk in all humility and kindness and love for one another. When they see a stranger, they bring that person to their homes and rejoice over them as over a true brother or sister. For they do not call brothers and sisters those who are after the flesh, but those who are in the spirit and in God. If there is among them a person that is poor and needy, and if they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with the necessary food. Such is the law of the Christians, and such is their conduct. Wow. So this is what happened. In that ancient, violent, pagan, dark world, there suddenly appeared these people that were doing something that nobody else was doing. They were loving each other. And people were looking on saying, we have never seen anything like that before. That is amazing. And they were loving each other across all cultural boundaries and racial boundaries and those, all of that, none of that mattered. Whoever it was, if they came to Jesus, they were welcomed in as brothers and sisters. You know, we talk about the need for revival in the church today, and we need to see a revival of love within the church. Because Jesus says the church is going to be my instrument to communicate who I am to the world. But the tragedy, the sadness, is that the witness of the church has been marred many times over by our failure in this area. This is the, by far the biggest problem with the church's witness to the world. And it's been this way all throughout history. And it's this way today. Our failure to love each other. And sometimes I'm t that applies to the person sitting next to you. Maybe you're even married to them. Or maybe it's your family who are also Christians. Or maybe it's people in your local church. Or maybe it's not that, but maybe it's people in the church down the road because that's not our church. 
We don't like what they do. We don't even know what they do, but we're sure we don't like it because they're obviously not doing what we're doing. This is the, the blight that has been upon the church. And I want, I want to give you uh, an example from history, but I want to, in the end, I want to show you how it's relevant today. So I'm gonna, we're going to put a picture up here on the screen. And are we going to go through the problem with the ladder again? Because I can't see it. Does anybody see a ladder in that picture? Okay, you can see it. I'm looking from this angle, so I can't see it. Okay. Okay. So remember these words, the status quo. And so that ladder, that ladder, believe it or not, it is a symbol of Christian inability to love. Believe it or not, that's what that ladder is. That building is the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem. And let me just give you the story and show you why that ladder is what it is. The immovable ladder of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is a religious symbol of a sort a kind of miracle possible only through human folly. It is also one of the most powerful and iconic symbols of the divisions and religious disputes within the Christian world. Proposed as the site of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's the belief of many people that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the very site where Jesus was crucified and buried. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is one of the holiest places in Christianity and has been the site of pilgrimages since the 4th century, since the early 300s. However, even this most venerated shrine could not escape the quirks of human nature, vanity, pride, and envy. Even from its earliest days, Christianity was subject to splintering, creating numerous denominations and sects, all claiming to be the only true school of followers of Jesus Christ. The most prominent of these fought bitterly over the centuries for the dominance over the holy places in the Holy Land. During the time of Muslim dominance over the area, a government equally hostile to all Christian denominations, no one sect could achieve a clear advantage over the others. As the disputes rolled on, the methods of gaining advantage became even more dubious, including outright bribery, blackmail, and the use of force. Today, the current situation is an uneasy status quo, the latter a kind of fragile compromise reached in several stages through the mediation of the Ottoman Empire, an Islamic empire, and several European powers. The care over the church is shared by no less than six denominations. The primary custodians are the Greek Orthodox, Armenian Apostolic, and Roman Catholic, with lesser duties shared by Coptic, Ethiopian, and Syriac Orthodox churches. The whole edifice is carefully parceled into sections 
some being commonly shared while others belonging strictly to a particular sex. So, so these, there's six different denominations under the one roof of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. That's what we're being told here. So arguments and violent clashes are not uncommon. In November 2008, an internet, the internet was flooded with videos of a fistfight between Armenian and Greek monks in one such dispute. A small section of the roof of the church is disputed between the cops and the Ethiopians. At least one Coptic monk at any given time sits there on a chair placed on a particular spot to express this claim. On a hot summer day, he moved his chair some 20 centimeters more into the shade. This was interpreted as a hostile act and violation of the status quo. Eleven were hospitalized after a fight resulting from this provocation. This state of affairs, listen, makes any agreement about renovations or repairs of the edifice impossible. The church is in a state of decay as a result. Here it is. The famous immovable ladder is a bizarre outcome of this religious stubbornness pushed to extremes. Sometime in the first half of the 18th century, 200 years ago, someone placed a ladder up against the wall of the church. No one is sure who he was, or more importantly, to which sect he belonged. The ladder remains there to this date. No one dares touch it lest they disturb the status quo and provoke the wrath of others. The exact date when the ladder was placed is not known, but the first evidence of it comes from a 1728 engraving. The ladder has not moved since. Now, someone might say, yeah, well, that's exactly what we'd expect from those denominations that don't truly know the Lord like we do. Be careful. You might want to pause and look around before passing that kind of judgment. For in condemning others, we might just end up condemning ourselves. What is represented by that ladder is a reality, not just at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, but it is a reality with the church in the United States of America. Divisions, condemning words, writing off other Christians as compromisers over politics, the pandemic, racial issues, are basically the American church's version of what is happening in the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And these divisive and hostile attitudes Christians have toward one another are a total fail before the watching world. You see, this, this is happening all around us today. There's nothing new. 
the same kind of bickering and divisions and, and hostilities and name-calling, and all of that is going on. And the church that desperately needs repaired can't be repaired because the people who could repair it can't get together for long enough to even begin to do it. This is our world, my friends. Christian love and unity are one of the main ways that God intends to show himself to a broken and fractured world. That is the point that Jesus is making. Everyone will know you are my disciple if you love each other. This is, this is you know, we, we have individual witness, we have individual testimony, but did you know that God intends to use the church collectively to show the church as a unique group of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and they all have this one thing, despite all of their differences, they love each other. But how sad it is that it is very rarely ever realized. Are we loving our neighbor? Are we loving the stranger? Are we loving our enemies? Jesus even said that we were to do that. Are we loving our brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of who they are voting for or whether they were vaccinated or not or if they think there is still racial injustice in this country? I mean, these are the things that people are completely divided against each other over. Listen, I have friends. I have people that I have known most of my ministry life who will not talk to me today because they suspect I didn't vote the way they thought I should. I'm serious. Or they think that I think something that they don't think I should think. I mean, this is the world that we live in. This, and so we look at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and we think how tragic, how horrible. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Look around. That's just a microcosm of the church in America. There's more division in the church in America today than at any time in my lifetime. And there's always been division, but there's more. But you know, we, we, we just think we know, and therefore we judge and we condemn. And You know, I was, of course, <laughs> I don't need to tell you, I was just in Israel. But I was having a brief time with a friend of mine who pastors, he pastors the oldest Messianic congregation in the land. His father was the founder of it. He pastors it today. Uh, Israel, this past week, so I, I have this interesting experience. I, this is my second um, daylight savings time. Last week, Israel changed their clocks, and we changed our clocks today. Um, and also, this week is my second election. Last week, Israel had their elections, and this week, we'll have ours. Now, some of you might know, some of you might follow this. 
Um, so the government has now had a, had a change, shifted from a left-leaning government, now back to a right-leaning government. Benjamin Netanyahu is now going to be again. Before you clap, <laughs> listen to, let me finish before you clap. Because that's exactly what we think, right? We think that right here, that's the way to go. Benjamin's our man. He's the guy. You know what my friend said to me? He's an Israeli. He's born in Israel. He's as Jewish as you can get, but he's a believer. He said, you know what? I know that Christians in America are going to be clapping for Netanyahu. He said, this is the worst thing that could happen for the gospel. How do we think about this stuff? It's the worst thing that can happen for the gospel because in order for him to be in power, he has to bring in the equivalent of the Pharisees and give them power in the country. And he says, these are the guys that will stop at nothing to prevent people from coming to faith in Jesus. So you see, we don't think through stuff. We just think, oh, and then we judge because they, what are we talking about? What are we even thinking about? I want to quote Paul Hewson. He said, having your faith hijacked by politics is something we all need to be really careful of. I don't think we should allow ourselves into this binary view of the world between progressive and conservative. I think it's very divisive. We'll find common ground by reaching for higher ground. He's absolutely right. You see, the higher ground is loving one another. That's how we'll find common ground. We can't get caught up in all of this rhetoric. We can't get caught up in disassociating with and even despising our Christian brothers and sisters because they happen to think differently about politics than we do. And you see, what in the end, what has it done? It's ripping the church apart. And the church that's supposed to be showing a broken and fractured world that there's a better alternative than what either the right or the left are offering, uh, there's the kingdom of God. But we can't show it because we're, we're all caught up in the wrong thing. We're, we're, we're not taking the higher ground. And we've got to take the higher ground, as said Paul Hewson, a.k.a. Bono. As we close, we have before us, as we do weekly, we have the bread and the cup. Just reminded me of a funny story. A young man was with us on the trip and he moved recently from Southern California to Arizona and he goes to a, uh, he w grew up in a Calvary Chapel and he, um, he, so he's ended up at another church in Arizona. And so he told me a little bit about the church and he said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like this church. <laughs> what he didn't know is, a good friend of mine is the pastor of the church. <laughs> so, but I listened to him and I just wanted to hear what he had to say. And he said, I don't like this church because you know what they do? They have communion every Sunday. 
And that's not a Calvary Chapel thing. I said, well, it is a Calvary Chapel thing at Costa Mesa. But he was a sweet kid, 22 years old, had a wonderful time with him. But it just, you know, it's, it's those kinds of things. We, we just got to get beyond that. The bread and the cup, they speak of the death of Jesus, but they speak of the love of Jesus, right? Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for their friends. And that's what Jesus did. And, and as we today have this opportunity to share in the bread and the cup, you know, I think that we probably need to repent as well. We probably need to ask the Lord to forgive us. I know as I was thinking about this message and preparing it, I had to, I had to just stop and say, okay, Lord, I, I do have to, I, I have to get things right with certain people. I have to love them even though they don't love me. That's not my problem. That, that God will have to deal with that in them, but God wants to deal with something in me. And maybe that's the case with you today. And it might be something right in your own home. It might be something in the workplace. It might be something in, in, in the church here. Or it might be something you know, out and beyond further in the church world things that we're holding on, people that we, we've judged and we're not willing to forgive and we disagree, so we must separate. Lord, have mercy. Forgive us. As we share in the bread and the cup today, let's remember these words from John, the Apostle John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's the word. A new command I give you, love one another. Jesus said it. Lord, thank you that your love for us is all of those things, Lord, that we consider, that it's selfless, that it's unconditional, that it's complete, that it's faithful. And Lord, we, we cannot muster up love. We need you to love through us. And we know that really just all, all we need to do is just get the blockage out, the blockage of sin, forgive us, and may your love overtake us and overflow from us. And may we see the world around us and our brothers and sisters in the church. Lord, may we just look through a new lens. May we look through the lens of love. In Jesus' name, amen.